Good morning. Good morning. Are we happy to be here? Um, it's another Sunday morning that God has given us and um, we thank him for the privilege that we have to gather. It's good to see all of you um, this morning. What a privilege and a joy to just gather and continue to uh, glean from the scriptures. I'd like us to read um, those four scriptures that we have read every so often as we have met. Maybe by now we have um, memorized them, but I'd like us to read Matthew 17 and verse 5. Matthew 17 verse 5. This comes after Matthew 16, where we've been dwelling on in the last while. And so this is during the transfiguration of Jesus. Uh, Matthew 17 verse 5. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And we have placed emphasis on that last bit, hear him, because it is him um, that we are to hear. And connect that to John 2 verse 5. This is during that first um, sign, so to speak, the changing of wine, uh, water into wine. John 2 verse 5. And this is after they had run out of wine. And we know that the mother of Jesus went to him and said, they have no wine. But Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And in verse 5, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do. And so even as we hear him, it is the view to us doing. I hope by now we have embraced the persuasion that our being found faithful at uh, the judgment seat of Christ has everything to do with what we do, not what we say. And no wonder in Revelation 2 and 3, seven times the scriptures begin with Jesus saying, I know your works. And the other scripture is Ruth chapter 3. We shall read verse 5 and 6. This is after Naomi, a type of the scriptures, had spoken and given instructions to Ruth. And in verse 5, this is the response that Ruth gives to Naomi. And she said to her, All that you say to me, I will do. And in verse 6, So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And so I believe we have a good example of one, of one person who had committed to do and went ahead to do exactly what she was told. And the last one is John 13, verses 17. John 13, verse 17. And this is after Jesus had washed his disciples' feet. If you know these things, blessed are you, if you do them. I hope we get the emphasis there. It is in the doing. And so let us go to um, our notes for today. Um, we are in part seven of the laws for profit. And we shall read these um, three uh, verses that have formed the body of this lesson in Matthew 16. And so we shall read verse 24 to 26. Then Jesus 
said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And so two weeks ago when we did part six, we did look at the birth of Christ, the son of the living God. And I know that this is a message that comes towards the end of the year during Christmas. But let us remind ourselves the following, that this is what we have learned in the last uh, six parts of this lesson, that coming after Jesus is an individual choice. It is an individual responsibility, and it is one that we make on a daily basis. And this involves a threefold action, to deny or to disown self, to take up the cross, and to follow him. To take up the cross and to present our bodies a living sacrifice, as we know from Romans 12.1, are two ways of saying the same thing. That which is still in bondage to sin, the unredeemed soul, the self-life, is to be kept continually in a state of dying so as to remain in subjection under our fully redeemed spirit as is pictured for us in baptism. Remember that we will go through the waters of baptism once, but for the rest of our lives we are to place the man of the flesh under the waters. I wonder how we are doing with respect to placing the man of the flesh under the waters. To deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow the Lord is the same action as losing our soul, our life, laying down our self-life for his name's sake, as we have read in verse 25. And we have only two options, dear friends. We either choose to lose now and profit then, or we choose to profit now and lose then. And we don't have to be smart to know which is the best option here. So last two weeks ago, when we looked at part six, we examined the events surrounding the birth of Christ. And by way of reminder, we know that the fall of man necessitated his redemption. And to do this, God promised a redeemer, Jesus Christ, whose incarnation took approximately 4,000 years. We also saw that God sent Gabriel, the angel, to Mary with a specific message. And being a Jew, Mary must have understood the message, being conversant with the Old Testament scriptures. And this message had everything to do with the birth of Christ, who would be called the Son of God in fulfillment of the words of Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter number 7. But we also saw that Mary had a dilemma. Because she asked the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? But you see, this was not a dilemma that the angel had. God had no dilemma. If anything, the angel comes with an assurance that the birth of her son was a matter of divine origin. And we did see that this was an invitation to Mary to trust in the Lord. And that is what we see in her, even as we read those words in Luke. She said, let it be to me according to your word. As though the dilemma 
was only a scenario that Mary faced. We also saw that Joseph, in a sense, probably we can see that there was also a dilemma in that he intended to put Mary away secretly. You know, we did read that, you know, Joseph um, was a man who did not want to bring Mary to a place of shame. It is not so much like we find nowadays, you know. And so the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, instructing him otherwise, instructing him to take Mary as his wife, and he obliged. And in this we saw that the plans and the purposes of God cannot be thwarted. We also did see that Joseph and Mary made a journey to Bethlehem for the simple reason of participating in the census because the authorities of the day had given a decree that all the people were to be registered. And the Hebrew meaning of Bethlehem, as we know, is a house of bread. This is also the same a Greek meaning. If you are to look for the word Bethlehem, the meaning is actually tied to the Hebrew meaning. And we did see that the journey to Bethlehem was not unique to Joseph and Mary. Naomi and Ruth had made the same journey uh, to Bethlehem. And this is where Naomi and her family originated from. And the end result of this journey was a marriage between Ruth and Boaz. And in this we did see that regality was in view. God sent Samuel to Bethlehem to anoint David, a descendant of Ruth and Boaz, to become the successor of Saul. And you see, in all this, rulership was also in view. And so even as we see Joseph and Mary making the journey to Bethlehem, it was not an arbitrary journey, we can say so. And while in Bethlehem, the time came for the Messiah to be born, and he was born in a manger. And we did examine the scriptures that tell us that there was no room for them in the inn. And so Jesus is born and placed in a manger, which is a feeding trough for animals, so to speak. And this is where the very one who would later feed the world was placed, remembering, of course, that Jesus is the bread of life. The birth of Jesus came with two sets of responses. To the shepherds, it was news of great joy. To Herod and all Jerusalem, this news came with trouble. Is it not interesting that even with the birth of Jesus, we only find two sets of responses? And I hope this confirms to us that scripture is um, very absolute, you know. There is no middle ground. And the wise men who had um, asked Herod where the king of the Jews was, when Herod called them and told them to go ahead and look for him and give him word, we know that later on, in a dream, they were warned not to return, and they obliged. And Herod, when he learned about this, he gave instructions to put to death all the male children from two years old and below. And with the departure of the wise men, we finished our lesson two weeks ago by saying that the Lord spoke to Joseph instructing him to take his family to Egypt due to the imminent destruction of Christ by Herod. And we shall read Matthew 2, 14 and 15. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, 
out of Egypt, I called my son. And you know, this journey to Egypt, as we have read, was to fulfill what God has said through Hosea the prophet. In Hosea 11 verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. I hope this confirms to us what Jeremiah the prophet in chapter 1 verse 12 would record. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. And so, um, if you looked at Matthew, I think 1, 2, and 3 there about that phrase, that it might be fulfilled, um, features very prominently. And I believe that that is to tell us that God will go whatever lengths to bring to pass that which he has told us. So I'd like us to continue. We are answering the question, why is it that the Jews had the perception of Christ that they did? How come only Peter and the disciples by extension had that understanding that Jesus is the Christ and not the larger masses, so to speak, of the Israelites during the first advent of Jesus Christ. And so we will read Luke chapter number 2, verse 6 to 7. And in this part we are asking, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am, as Jesus asked in Matthew 16? So reading Luke 2, verse 6 to 7. So it was, while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Mary brought forth her firstborn son, and after wrapping him in swaddling clothes, she laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And the Greek word for room is a word which means place, any portion or space marked off as it were from surrounding space. It means an inhabited place as a city, a village, a district. It means a spot, general in space, but limited by occupancy, that is, location, as a position, home, or tract. Figuratively, this word means condition. It means opportunity, especially place, room, where. And since many people may have returned to Bethlehem, for the census, the small city was overflowing with people, and maybe it is for this reason that there was no other place to stay, and the only available space was a manger. In a manner of speaking, Bethlehem, which means house of bread, had no space, had no place, had no spot, figuratively had no opportunity to accommodate the newborn baby Jesus Christ, the bread of life. What, I, what an irony this is. We know that Bethlehem was a Jewish city. We know that, don't we? Do we? Yes. Jews, as we know, were eternally saved individuals with spiritual perception. You know, when you open the Gospels, you don't find anywhere a message the gospel of the grace of God being given to the Jews. Why? Because they were eternally saved. Now to the Jews were given the oracles of God, referring to the scriptures, reading Romans 3 verse 1 to 2. What advantage then has the Jew 
or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. The Bible, being a Jewish book in their possession, had borne witness to the birth of Christ. If only they had read Isaiah 7, 13 to 14, then he said, Hear, o, hear now, O house of David. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Not only were the oracles of God given to the Jews, but Jesus says he found nowhere to lay his head, even as we would read the words of Jesus in Luke 9.58. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And I ask us a question this morning. Was Jesus homeless during his first advent, thereby needing a place to lay his head? Was Jesus homeless during his first advent? Where was he staying? Where? Where was he staying? Which house? So why would Jesus say that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head if he had a place to lay his head? Well, let's continue and see whether we can find an answer. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Let's go back to the account that is given by Matthew, chapter number 2, verse 1 to 4, speaking about the birth of Jesus. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men came from the east. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. Wise men came to Jerusalem, and they had only one question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And when Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod then gathered the religious leaders of Israel, all the chief priests and scribes, and gave them a specific assignment, and that is, establish where the Christ was to be born. It was interesting for me to see that Herod made a connection between the king of the Jews and Christ. To this extent, we can conclude that Herod and all Jerusalem had a knowledge, they had an expectation that the Christ would be born. Otherwise, he would not have gone ahead to gather the religious leaders of Israel to make this inquiry. The religious leaders did not use any figment of imagination or mere guesswork in establishing with precision where Christ was to be born, continuing in verse 5 of Matthew 2. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written 
by the prophet. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. These religious leaders had spiritual perception. And for this reason, they went to the only place they knew the right answer was, and even today is to be found. They went to the Old Testament scriptures. They must have known what Micah the prophet in chapter 5 verse 2 had recorded. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Maybe we may want to just pause and ask ourselves, where are we to go to if we are to find with precision even answers for the things that we are facing on a day-to-day -day basis? Are we to go to YouTube University? Are we to enroll in the school of Google? You know, these religious leaders, they went only to one place, and that is to the scriptures. And maybe there is something for us to glean from that. When the angel appeared to the shepherds, tending their flock by night, he announced the birth of a Savior, Christ the Lord. And when Jesus began his ministry, he made it very clear that he was sent to the lost ship of the house of Israel, reading Matthew 15, 24. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost ship of the house of Israel. And he was sent with a very specific message, reading Matthew 4.17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven, literally the kingdom of the heavens, is at hand. And so we see Jesus with a specific message to a specific people. And when he sent his disciples, he sent them to the same people with the same message, reading Matthew 10, 5 to 7. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Gospels open with a central message pertaining the kingdom of the heavens to a redeemed nation, the Jews, in fulfillment of the promise that God had made to Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 17. Reading Matthew 3, verse 1 to 2, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and there is no explanation that is given of this message because the expectation is that the Jews would understand it and thereby respond correctly. But did they? They did not. And therefore, in lacking a place to lay his head, we can safely conclude that it is the message pertaining the kingdom of the heavens as well as the identity of the Christ that did not find acceptance 
among the Jews that in answering the question whether Jesus was homeless during his first advent and thereby needing a place to lay his head, we can answer by saying that it is this message pertaining the kingdom of the heavens. And it was also his identity as a Christ that did not find acceptance among the Jews. Reading the words of John 1 verse 11, to his own things he came and his own people did not receive him. Um, this other version probably would bring this understanding home. He came to that which belonged to him, to his own, that is his domain, his creation, his things and world. And they who were his own did not receive him and did not welcome him. Let us look at Luke 22 verse 66, um, 67 and 70. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. Then they all said, that is after Jesus gave the response, they all said, Are you, the, are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. But we know that even after this response, you know, these religious leaders, so to speak, they condemned him to death. In Mark's account, chapter 14, 63 to 64, then the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. We know that God provided the Jews with religious leaders to teach them matters pertaining the available body of scriptures at the time, and that is the Old Testament scriptures. And this is why Jesus would speak of them as having sat at Moses' seat in Matthew 23, verse 1 to 2, then Jesus spoke to the multitude and said, and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. However, although they were physically present, the religious leaders of Israel at the time abdicated their responsibility. And for this reason, Jesus described the Jews like sheep, but having no shepherd. In Matthew 9.35-36, then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. In abdicating their responsibility, Jesus describes the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes and the high priests as blind leaders, interestingly, of the blind, Matthew 15, 13-14. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. 
they, speaking of the Pharisees, are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. And one of the ways in which we can see how blind the Pharisees were is that they opposed Jesus. They attributed his power to that of the demons in Matthew 9:32 to 34. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. We can also see another illustration of their blindness, in that they sought to destroy Christ, and for the second time in a row, attributed the power of Christ to the ruler of the demons. In Matthew 12, reading verse 14, Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him, how they might destroy him. And jumping to verse 22 to 24, Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. In other words, the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of Israel, they were in a sense contradicting what the multitudes had said. They were saying this cannot be the son of David. And this choice by the Pharisees to attribute the power of Christ to the demons was the second time as we have said. Only that this time around it had far-reaching consequences, not just for them, but for the entire nation of Israel. As you would read in verse 31 and 32 of Matthew 12, Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. And if we have been following what pastors have been teaching in the recent past, we know that the opportunity to rule from the heavens over the earth was no longer available to Israel, either in the current age that we are in or in the coming one. Truly speaking, here we have the blind leaders of the blind. We are still seeking to understand why is it that they had a perception of Christ as we saw the other time. Jesus later would warn the disciples, telling them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the, Pharisees and the Sadducees. We know that they had asked him, that is the Pharisees and the Sadducees, asked Jesus for a sign. But thankfully Jesus knew their intentions, and he did not give them any. If anything, in Matthew 16 verse 4, Jesus says, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except 
the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. We find the same in Matthew 12, 38 to 42. And I believe that by Jesus telling them, except the sign of the prophet Jonah, these Pharisees and the Sadducees must have understood what Jesus was telling them. Jesus, continuing with his disciples, warns them about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, continuing in verse 5 of Matthew 16. Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But you know, these disciples thought that Jesus was referring to the physical bread. And so in verse 11, Jesus asked them, How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware as for the children of Israel, they were to get rid of leaven. And for this reason, if leaven is used to show that which is corrupt, we can only conclude that what the Pharisees and the Sadducees taught was corrupt. Now the question is, and many other such things you do, and in verse 12 to 13, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. I hope that we can see that what was of priority to the scribes and the Pharisees was their tradition. And if you look at the things that form their tradition, there is something that Jesus says in Matthew 23 that is not in our notes that I'd like us to read. Matthew 23 and verse 23. This is among the many woes that was given to the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew 23 and verse 23. And this is what Jesus says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. But it is this last part that I wanted to use. This you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. You know, Jesus is telling them, yes, you have it right. But even though you needed to have done this, you should not have forgotten that the priority really has to be where the focus of scripture is. And I wonder to us, dear friends, is there a possibility that we have also come to that point where our traditions have taken preeminence over the word of God? Let me submit to us that good behavior, that good manners will not guarantee our entry into the kingdom of God. While it is important for us to have good behavior and good manners, let me submit to us that when we stand before the Lord, it is just his word that will be used to bring us to judgment. I'm not encouraging any one of us to have bad behavior. Please don't get me wrong. Let us move to Matthew 21, 33 to 39, the parable that speaks about 
the children of Israel, I'm sure we can relate with this because it has been part of what pastor has been teaching recently. Matthew 21, 33-39. Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a winepress in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. In this parable, the landowner is God the Father. The vineyard is a nation of Israel and the vine dressers are the religious leaders of Israel. The servants are the prophets sent by God and the landowner's son is none other than Jesus the Christ. The landowner sent his son to the vine dressers and when they saw him as we have read, rightly understanding who he was as the heir, they conspired to kill him. And they actually did kill him. Did the religious leaders of Israel, including the Pharisees, know who Jesus was? Yes, they did. In John 3 verse 1 to 2, we have one Pharisee named Nicodemus. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Yet despite having known who Jesus was, the religious leaders of Israel conspired to kill him, and they did. Without a shadow of doubt, they knew after Jesus spoke this parable, these religious leaders, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they knew that Jesus spoke about them. In verse 45 of Matthew 21, Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. How can we know that they conspired to kill him? Well, we have a place that we can go to in John 11. After Lazarus, a picture of the nation of Israel, was raised, they planned to seize him. In John 11:47 to 48, then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. You can see their priority. They were very insecure. According to them, their place would be taken. And in verse 57, now both the chief priests and the Pharisees 
had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. And when the opportunity presented himself, they sent troops with Judas, one of the disciples of Jesus, to arrest him. In John 18 verse 3, Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. And in verse 12, Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was a father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Not only did they seize him, but they incited the multitudes to ask for Barabbas and have Jesus crucified. In Matthew 27, 17 following, Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? And in verse 20, But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? This is the second time of asking. And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. In Luke 24, when Jesus joins these two disciples on their way to Emmaus, in verse 19, after Jesus asked them why they were sad, they asked him, are you a stranger? And part of the conversation that these two disciples gave Jesus is they said to him the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. This was just to show us that it is the religious leaders of Israel who are culpable, so to speak. Christ, we know from Matthew 23, condemns these two leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. I think the pinnacle of this condemnation is Matthew 23, verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Why? For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. This is Jesus speaking. And we can see from this verse and the other words that are recorded in Matthew 23, the Pharisees and the scribes shut up the kingdom of the heavens against men, the children of Israel. They neither went in themselves, neither did they allow those who were entering to go in. What a sad state of affairs. But winding up the parable that we have read in Matthew 21, let's move to verse 40 and 41 and 43. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, 
What will he do to those vine dressers? And the Pharisees answered emphatically, they said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to the other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. And no wonder in verse 43, Jesus speaking says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God, literally the kingdom of the heavens, will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. This action by the vine dressers had dire consequences. The kingdom of the heavens was taken from Israel and is now on offer to a nation bearing the fruits of it, which is the church of whom we are part of this morning. And in bringing this lesson to a close, let's conclude by saying the following, that based on the central role played by the religious leaders, it is no wonder that the Jews were divided in their perception of Christ, resulting in their rejection of him and his message. And we shall read John 7, verse 32, and skip to verse 40 to 43. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is a prophet. Others said, This is a Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. You know the interesting bit about verse 41 and 42, the Jews without knowing it were actually saying the correct thing. Because Christ certainly was to come out of Galilee. The scriptures that they had certainly bore witness that Christ would come from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem. And yet because of the role that was played by their religious leaders, they were divided. And I wonder even as we bring it you know, to our own context today, the word of the kingdom, as you now know, is a message that has not been well received across the board. And you know, if those who have been given the assignment to teach were to teach that which the scriptures would require of them, maybe, just maybe, people would come to the understanding of who the Christ is. One time um, I attended this assembly, I think in 2017, and the pastor spoke about types and antitypes, and I thought, wow, I'm finally home. But you know the way it was mentioned, it was just mentioned in passing. And you can see how much of a disaster that happens, even in our present modern church time that we are living in. But I wonder, even as we close today, we are looking at laws for profit. And the question that I'd leave us with, what spiritual lessons can we draw for ourselves from this very lesson? And maybe if the Lord is willing, we can find the answers 
in part eight next time, if the Lord is willing. Shall we pray? Our gracious Father and our God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for assembling us here this morning. We thank you, God, for this faith action because you have instructed us to gather together. And we bless you, Lord, for the bread of life that you have fed us with. At the beginning, dear God, of this meeting, Lord, you reminded us about that example that we are to see in the children of Israel. And gracious Father, there is so much that we can glean. And I pray that, Lord, even as we begin a new week, that, Lord, you will help us to put this lesson into its proper context. The Lord, you have gifted us with the scriptures, the author and the teacher, your Holy Spirit. And therefore, Lord, I pray that like Peter, as we choose, dear Lord, to study your word on a day-to-day -day basis, the Lord, we shall continue to receive that revelation from above. I pray the Lord that which you may want us to lose in form of teaching that we have been taught in the past, the Lord your grace will prevail, and the Lord you shall continue to teach us, dear God, even as we unlearn the many things that we were socialized in, the Lord may not be correct. And so God, we thank you and we bless you. We pray the Lord we shall be the good soil Christian who hears the word of the kingdom, understands it, and bears fruit some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. The Lord, we shall overcome the very temptation that will come because, Lord, we know from the parable of the sower that there are those who fell by the wayside, that there are those, dear God, who fell among the thorns, among the rocky places. They did not bear fruit, but, Lord, it is our desire that, Lord, we shall bear fruit with respect to this instruction. We thank you, God, and we bless you because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.